0: Anyway, let's go ahead and we'll begin class with prayer. Ken, Ken, would you lead us? Sure, let's pray. Father, again we thank you for another opportunity to get together in your name, Lord, to uh, study and learn your word and apply it to our lives and our hearts. Uh, we thank you for Bobby being here tonight to lead this to uh, lead this class. We thank you for each one here. We pray and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Well, it was really Solomon's temple. David acquired the material for it. Solomon's the one who actually built it. So the first one's called Solomon's temple. The temple we're we're talking about here, it's called Zerubbabel's temple. And that's because of the Zerubbabel here in the book. And then the next one will be Herod's temple. Um, when you go to Israel that's what you're really looking at and then there will be this eschatological temple which if, if you read Exodus I mean Ezekiel 40 to 48 it is going to be a grand temple it will be the best so the best is left for last so but those are the four temples Well, those no, the rubble bowls will be it's, it's not as good as what Solomon's was that was part of the problem. They were expecting uh, a construction like Solomon's Temple. So this will be a smaller one. Now Solomon, I mean, Herod's was was good size. Uh, the eschatological one will be even better, and um, as far as its overall beauty and things like this. But uh, yeah, the one when we went to Israel, you know, we went by the temple about every day and. It's just amazing the size of those stones. And you'll see Jews down there, you know, praying. You know, they're up by the wall, and you see the Muslims coming in. And, you know, we could tell back then, this is right before everything started to fall apart. This was uh, in 2000. But the air was really thick between the Jews and the Palestinians. It's always been a little thick, but you could tell that something was going to fall apart. And that's really—I think it was 2001. That's when you started having the, uh, you know, the uh, conflict between the Palestinians. You know, where people were getting killed and stuff like that. So I don't know that we could do quite today what we did back in 2000. In fact, I've been told you can't. So, but anyway, that—that's a very impressive site. But the eschatological one will be better. Is there a good book or something that would show pictures? Uh, There are some books. I'll have to make a note. I can tell you next week. I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, Yeah, I've got a number of them that I picked up when I was in Israel You know, they're not that expensive. It's pretty easy to pick them up on Amazon. Now, they probably would have updates since 2000. But uh, anyway, but it's an interesting subject. Okay. Well, this is a first-time experience then. So, okay. Well, we're going to pick up on page 15. So far in Haggai, the messages, we've described them as disputations. Remember, a disputation, that's a 50-cent term that they use in commentaries and stuff. All that means is you're trying to convince somebody he's wrong and that your position's right. So that's exactly what we see going on here with Haggai. He's trying to show the people because they've been disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant, they're experiencing these covenant curses. And so that's what he's disputing. He's demonstrating they're wrong and God's right if they follow the Mosaic Covenant. So here we're with the third one. So... This is called The Blessings for a Defiled People. It's a pretty intriguing passage. Uh, Notice this takes place seven days before Christmas, but it's before Christmas. And furthermore, we don't know Christmas was on December 25th. (laughs) That's an arbitrary date in some sense. But nevertheless, you can remember it just by the fact it's a week before Christmas. So, here, the work on the temple had begun three months earlier. And the Lord speaks to Haggai, who's now supposed to question the priest about ritual purity and impurity. That's verses 11 and 13. These questions are then related to Judah's uncleanness in reference to spiritual defilement because of their lack of loyalty to the God of the covenant. That'll be verse 14. And then in 15 to 19, Haggai then extends his application of this to how the Lord was going to bless Judah from this time, that is the time of Haggai, and forward. Well, we can see in verse 10, we see the messenger formula. Um, In fact, let's just read through the whole passage to get the flow of it, and then we'll go through the notes. So this starts with verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Asked the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this From this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on any other in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree had not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless it so that they will bear their fruit. That's the point. Now this passage is dealing with what we call ritual cleanness. It's not really saying anything about their spiritual condition. It's about we call it a ritual holiness. And so there was a lot of things the Israelites had to do. For example, if if you come in contact with a dead body, you got to go through a ritual cleansing. And uh, you cannot, uh, I mean, you've got to stay separate. I think it's for the whole day. When that, and then you've got to offer certain offerings and stuff like that. So this ritual stuff was big to the Jews. That type of thing, I think it's hard for us to understand in our day. Uh, you know, when I first started to school, to seminary, because there's a lot more ritual. You know, at our seminary, our guys wore, wore sports coats and ties for years. It's only been within the last seven, eight years that that's changed. But before that, you know, we got our standards primarily from Ford. And so how the white-collar people dress, that's what we expect the seminary students to dress. And I use that as an illustration. There was a little bit more ritual there. I was raised Presbyterian. There was much more ritual. Our pastor preached with a robe on. The choir members all had robes. That's why you used to be at Inner City. Did they still have robes when you were there, Ron? Yeah, well, that's changed. (laughs) Now, I'm kind of a... You know, my wife would say I'm kind of a a rag-tie guy, Ragtag, because I have to wear a sports coat to chapel every time we have chapel. Now, the students don't, but the faculty does just to let them know there is a time to dress up. Well, the problem is, is in the old days, you had basically things that were black and white, It was easy for me to get my clothes. My wife is dutifully at home. She's sick tonight. But she will lay out the clothes I will wear for tomorrow. She will make everything match. Well, I I have a real problem with getting the combinations right. I can't tell the difference between black and blue, as well as just I'm illiterate, as far as color schemes go. In fact, she lays out my clothes about every day. (laughs) So... But see, when it was in the old days and it was just basically black and white, maybe a gray, it was pretty easy. I could pick that out. <laughs> but those days are gone. Well, I use that to illustrate the significance of rich, ritual. It was a big deal. Today, it's not so much. I don't think we see, unless you're in a you know, church with a little bit more of a hierarchy. We don't see that. It was the same way at General Motors. Okay. Salary employee, you wore a tie all the time. If you were going to meet with a vendor or leave the building, you had to wear either a suit or a sport coat. Okay. Then it relaxed the business casual. Well, that's when the change is really, that's when we we started changing. And then it came no tie. And then about a year before I left, you could wear jeans. Wow. Well, it was when that changed came about and as it progressively changed I'll say went down although I'm not much for the ritual Uh, that's when we started changing and so now you know our guys you know they come in and they just have they'll be dressed like I am tonight occasionally somebody tries to sneak in with blue jeans on but we don't permit it We've got to have a little bit of dignity left. (laughs) But see, I may do that, but inside, I'm in my blue jeans and a comfortable shirt inside, but not in bodily form. Well, our society is getting more difficult, but I I think we can still see that in some areas. Well, for the Jewish people, that was a real big deal with the priesthood. So they had to follow everything to the nth degree. In fact, the priest on the Day of the Atonement, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to be ritually clean. It was so big a deal. They put a rope on him when he went into the Holy of Holies. If he wasn't ritually clean, he would be killed. They couldn't go in to get him, so they'd drag him out. May I say? That ritual stuff was a big deal to God? So that's what they're talking about here. Stuff related to the Israelite religious ritual. Now, let's look at a few things here. First of all, number two, the oracle dealing with past defilement and anticipated blessing, verses 11 and 19. Notice Judas' defilement in verses 11 to 14. Judas' past defilement as reflected by the request of the priest about ritual purity and impurity, verses 11 to 13. Again, as we read you saw, there was that messenger formula. But secondly, notice the first question to priest and the answer. Verse 11 introduces Haggai's hypothetical question posed to the priest. Haggai poses his first question to the priest in verse 12. It is related to sacred meat that was carried in the fold of a garment. Uh, I hate to break it to us guys, but back then, they weren't wearing pants like we were. So they would have a skirt. And uh, there would be a fold, and they could put their meat in it. And so he's referring to that custom that practice uh, the issue is could that garment once you have that holy meat in your fold can that then transmit that holiness to another object well the answer technically is found in Leviticus six twenty-seven. it states there that the meat from the sin offering did transmit its holiness to an item with which it came in contact Haggai's question, however, deals with whether this holiness could be twice transmitted. Did that consecrated meat sanctify the garment? And the priest would say, yes. However, is it possible for that garment to subsequently make other foods ritually pure? The answer to this question is no. As the priest clearly communicates here, he says no. But notice the second question. The opposite question is the substance of verse 13. The question here is not, is holy infectious? But, is defilement infectious? Leviticus twenty two four to six supplies the background. If he touches something defiled by a corpse, the one who touches any such thing will be unclean until evening. Numbers nineteen eleven to sixteen is an expanded version of the same basic tenet. Uncleanness is contagious. Uh, so the priest's affirmative answer, to this question exactly the Haggai response Haggai wanted by the way I often tell my seminary students I'm glad we're not under this system you had to cleanse yourself many many times in fact the Jews became so ritualistic about this some scribes when they were copying the Old Testament scriptures uh, when they wrote the divine name, the Lord. Uh, Jews will refer to it as the Tetragrammaton. Sometimes you'll hear it in songs as Jehovah uh, or Yahweh. In songs, I think, it's more Jehovah. It seems a rhyme battle with most things. (laughs) So I don't have any hang up it, but it's still the incorrect pronunciation. The correct one would be Yahweh. But the Jews won't say that. Every time they see the tetragrammaton. It's the four letters. Y-H-W-H. They don't say it. They say Adonai. So every time they come across that, they say Adonai. When my Hebrew students read the Hebrew text, they have to say Adonai. That's a tradition. It's a time-honored tradition. Now, Do I need to force them to do it? Yeah, because they need to learn some discipline. (laughs) In reading the Hebrew text. They may talk to a Jewish person sometime. We've had students do that. I've talked to them before. I don't talk about, if I mention the divine name, I don't say Yahweh. Now, I think academically, that's permissible. But I would just say Adonai because they'll know that you respect their tradition. So they maintain some things, but this thing, when you copied that when you're a scribe, certain requirements, certain scribal traditions had you, had you go and wash after every time you wrote it. Well, the tetragrammaton occurs a whole lot in the Bible. Uh, sometimes they'd have to get rid of whatever source they were using to write with their stylus. So, may I say, that truly was legalism. There was legalism. That's it. But that shows you. They almost viewed the divine name like a rabbit's foot. And with that, I mean, it's... That's no substitute for genuine godliness. It's just a ritualistic tradition. I remember when I was in college and I was not a Christian I ran cross country and track I was friends with the star runner but he was a hooligan just like I was and so uh, one night we went down to Mountain Union I think they call it University now but back then it was Mountain Union College and there was five of us in the car something that antagonized a bunch of people. So they get in their cars, there was five of them, and they go after us. Um, we had something like a roadrunner, and it could, it could really move. But I'll never forget, we're doing over 100 miles an hour on these back roads. And my friend pulls out his King James Bible and puts it on the dashboard. <laughs> and we all say to him, what's this for? for? I need a little bit of luck. I need the Lord. (laughs) May I say, that's the way I think some of the Jewish practices are. But I don't tell the Jews that. (laughs) I'm speaking to genuine Christians. So anyway, some of these rituals were just really a major deal. And that's what he's focusing on here. So, notice the point of this. Number two. Judas' past defilement is reflected by the application from ritual impurity. Did you notice in verse 14? He says, So it is with this people, that is, they're richly unclean. And this station in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. That is, their ritual, may I say, there's also spiritual ramifications here. Whatever they touch is defiled because they are defiled. That's the point. That's why you don't have those bumper crops. So, may I say, Haggai's hitting where it hurts them the most. And that is in the the wallet, or probably a little bag. So, But that's the way, that's where we live too. And I think there is something here to us about our spiritual condition. You know, it it does seem to me that we really need to be concerned about holiness in our lives. Now, we don't have the ritual rules. But, you know, I'm not talking about things Whether you go to a movie, you don't go to the movie. I mean, I go to movies. But, you always know the content before I go. And if it's got bad stuff in it, and by the way, there's websites you can check this out pretty easily. We don't go to it. Now, I watch Gladiator on a DVD. I suspect I could have gone there because, you know, there's nothing as far as immorality in it. In fact, I call it a chick flick because he stays true to his wife till the end. He thinks he's going to see her. It's something like a reward, but he should be thinking downstairs. (laughs) So I'm not talking about stuff like that. However, our holiness does affect what type of movies we see, what type of TV we watch, what we do on the Internet. So it's not like the old days where you had a checklist. We're back to what basically the Bible's about. That is, you know, we're not supposed to be drunkards. We're not supposed to be immoral. In fact, Ephesians 5 says even to mention obscenities is bad. In fact, that's a very strong passage. You know, in our day, what about internet pornography? It's covered in Ephesians 5. Anything like that. And it goes on, I think it's around verse 5 or verse 6 those who do such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Well, what about a Christian? Well, it seems to me that Christians who do have those problems need to repent. And get some accountability. Uh, you know, my, my wife and I, we use eyes. My wife's one of my accountability partners. I got two other friends who are very newhetic. They also read it. Well, that's because I am worried about my holiness. And there is temptation. And I'm not beyond it. And I think most men, and today it turns out women, aren't beyond it. But friends, we've got to fight the battle. Sometimes we may slip, but we need to repent, get back up, and follow Christ. And sometimes when it's necessary, we need accountability partners. So um, to me, I think that's where our battles are in our age it's that i think drugs that seems a little bit more aloof for christians but you know i do know a number of christians who do drink some alcoholic beverages uh yeah you know, they got to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling but the bible is very clear drunkenness is sin i because we have a family history of alcoholism I don't touch a drop. Furthermore, I'd lose my job. But I was... <laughs> but I was... still, yeah, yeah, But I, was, I started doing that when I, when I was in college and I got converted. So those are the vices we face. And I, I think for the sake of our testimony and be able to witness, we ought to be concerned about our holiness. It would be nice to have a lifestyle that backs up the gospel as we seek to share it. In fact, God expects that of us. So I just say that as an application. We should have the same type of concern that God had with this ritual. Except I think there's more than the ritual. I think there were spiritual ramifications here for the priest. And unfortunately, many of them were lost as can be. But not all of them. So they should have been concerned about both. For us, we need to be concerned about it in our, in our personal lives. And I think also as we minister to other people, we need to reflect that. It's more than likely somebody's struggling. Everybody's got some type of besetting sin. And everybody, nobody gets that sanctified. I wish that were the case. I strive for that. I can say this because my wife's not here tonight. But she would say, I still struggle. No, we still have disagreements. You know, I can't help it. She's always wrong. (laughs) Good thing she isn't here. (laughs) I would not have said that. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But, you know, in our personal relationships, a lot of times that's where our struggles are. Learning to get along. Fortunately, over time you know things have become a lot better but when you have kids life will be a hassle especially when they start playing sports and then it gets ratcheted up when they get to junior high and then senior high how do I know that we went through it and it was a major struggle so you know, friends, often that's where our battles are. Our concern at this point in life is being a godly grandparent and being the right type of example. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, what affects us most. So, you know, my wife's very concerned about it. I'm very concerned about it. You know, I, when I'm dead and gone, I want my uh, grandchildren to say, my grandfather... Was a godly man. My grandmother was a godly woman. But, you know, I, I do thank God because, you know, my son Bob, he said the most important thing that he and his two siblings got was a, a godly legacy. Well, you know, coming from him at this age, just more mature, I don't know if we would have heard that when he was 21. <laughs> in fact, if anybody's had a kid that age, they know what I mean. But he's gotten older and he's got a family and they see the struggles we went through. But I told him, I'm glad you said that, son, because there's not much in the will. <laughs> so in any event, well, that's where some of our current our concerns should be. But let's look at Judah's anticipated blessing in verses 15 to 19. Notice the exhortation to contemplate the present and future in light of Lord's past enforcement of the covenant. Notice he says in verse 15, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. The point here, the content of what the people Judah were to think and when they were to think it. That's the issue. Notice what he says here. Haggai says, they must consider the recent past. Along this line, the Net Bible, the New English translation of the Bible, they translate verse 15 like this. Now, therefore, reflect carefully on the recent past before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. Well, that's a pretty good translation. Uh, Here, I think it's clearer than the NIV even. And I am an NIV man. So, Anyway, thus the temple setting of the command is a present-future sense that is present from Haggai's day at that moment and extending into the future. That's really the issue here. Um, the backdrop in verses 15b to 17 and 19a, that is, we're looking past verse 18 and 19b. This is composed of Judah's disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant and its consequential judgment. In fact, you probably noticed when I read it, I think it's jumped out. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me. Notice, that should have hit them right between the eyes. That's why our crops aren't the way we thought they'd be. It's because of God. And we brought it on by our disobedience. So um, this was intended to be the comparison with the focal point of the content really being verse 19b. Notice in the last part, he says, until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. That's the point. So here, in this context, the loyalty of the Lord was to be demonstrated by rebuilding the temple with the consequences of experience experiencing God's covenant blessings. Well, verses sixteen and seventeen go on. They're reminded of the past to learn from it. The people are reminded from what they have experienced in the past because of their uncleanness. The connection with the preceding sentence is evident. Here's the gist of it. Because of their impurity, they must consider their past experience as a token of God's displeasure with them. Why just a token? Because they're not in hell. This is the same theological idea as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6. Then we have the exhortation to contemplate the present and future blessings. Notice the point of this unit is that from this day when his exhortation was given, God would bless the nation Israel as they were loyal to him. By the way, you, you probably didn't miss that, but he says, from this day on, I will bless you. That's because they're getting into the thick of rebuilding the temple. So that's the point of this exhortation. Now, are there any questions on that? I hope you understand as I apply the text. You know, we, we've got to see the principles there because we're not under the law thank God but we've been freed from it but the New Testament has many commands we have to follow and so that's really our it's called in the New Testament the laws of Christ it's the laws that Christ gave the apostles gave and those were spelled out in the New Testament so To me, that's where we go for advice on how to live. And in general, it's, you know, except for being baptized for the dead in 1 Corinthians, everything's pretty clear. (laughs) So we don't have anything to debate about. So, anyway, let's look at the message four. Verses 20 to 23. Zerubbabel, the Lord's signet ring this message is on the same day some commentaries who really don't believe the bible think it's the problem that he delivers two messages well don't you have a sunday school classes here or you you got sunday school classes and then you have you know your time for your evangelistic endeavors that's one and then you had a sermon before that Was Pastor Ken up to two messages? Sure was. So I don't see much of the problem here myself. In fact, if the people are gathered, it's a good thing to have it. And that's what we have go on here. Here, both of the oracles are significant in that one relates to the religious future of the nation and the final one relates to the political mechanism of the theocracy. That is the future of the Davidic dynasty. That's the uh, theocratic mechanism, political mechanism of the theocracy. Notice the oracle here in verse 21. You can see the introduction in verse 20. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Now, notice here in verses 21 to 22. We saw this concept of the Lord shaking of the heavens and the earth. This is on page 18. Uh, Notice, first of all, what he's doing here in verses 21 to 22. He gives the rubbable three promises. Number one, the Lord will shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 21b. Uh, This, I understand, is a reference to the future day of the Lord may I just briefly define what the future day of the Lord is? The day of the Lord is a concept where the God, is, God is displaying his sovereignty in an abundant way. The tribulation period is identified as the day of the Lord. The last part is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So I understand he's looking forward to that future day the tribulation period. Um, So that's when God's going to be, can I say shaking things up, so to speak? (laughs) Um, Notice furthermore here, the second promise, the Lord will overturn royal thrones. We see that in verse 22a. God is going to overturn the Gentile kingdoms. The verb translated as overturned is used for the Lord's intervention in the affairs of men, such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This verb is, well, we can skip the syntactical stuff. Um, Anyway, the idea is that God in the future is going to shake, he's going to shake up, overturn royal thrones. Notice the third promise. The Lord will shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. In the last part of verse 22, notice here, I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. So in that future day of the Lord, God itemizes a few things that he's going to use. Uh, did you notice he says in uh, verse 21 he's going to shake the heavens and the earth verse 22 he's going to overturn thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms I will overthrow chariots Uh, notice furthermore horses and their riders will fall on that day He's referring to the mechanisms they used in warfare. However, may I say these are representative? That is, God could use some other things in the future day of the Lord. Militarily, we've made advancements. May I say, I think this allows for some of those things as well? In overturning these thrones, do do we think they're just going to surrender them? It's going to involve battle, and so when I see prophecy in Scripture, I usually take it that uh, some of the instruments of warfare, uh, like bow and arrow and you know spears, those are representative. Now, by the way, spears are still used in some wars, so I'm not saying they'll be absent, but I'm saying they represent whatever feature of military armament. That's available at that time. He'll use that. So I would say these just represent and allow for others. Um, I don't take these things quite like Jack Van Hippie did. Most of you probably don't remember him. You don't remember him, do you, Ken? Ron, you remember him? Uh, he was a he was a walking Bible. I think he had. Did he have it all memorized? And uh, he was known as the walking Bible. Well, I'm one-up them today. I've got my iPhone. And I've got all the translations on it. So you can call me the walking Bible. (laughs) And my prophecies are not going to be destroyed because they didn't turn out. (laughs) We're just sticking with what the Bible says. That's what I'm banking on, not my interpretation of it. So here, that will happen in the day of the Lord. Also, the Lord's choosing is the rubbable as his signet ring. Notice it says, on that day. What does this refer to? Well, we must always look at a context to determine what the antecedent, that is, what's prior to that in Haggai 2:23 time is found in verse 22 it is during that future time that the Lord overthrows the nations to upset his to set up his kingdom that he we should expect to see his prophecy recorded happen at that time. Now fortunately, Christians will not be living through the day of the Lord. Christ will return in the rapture and rapture the church out and also the dead in Christ, Old Testament saints, they're also going to rise. So you're going to have the dead in Christ, you're going to have those who are, who are alive and the Old Testament saints as well. So that'll be, quite a day uh, and we will rejoice when we're with the Lord when we see the full nature of destruction it will be ugly wars are always ugly but I think this is going to I mean it's called the last half of the tribulation it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord and I've God at his word that means that's going to be worse than the first part of the day of the Lord So this will be ugly warfare. Violent. It'll be worse than Afghanistan. Uh, Also when we went into Iran. This will be much worse than those. We get glimpses. But we don't know precisely how bad it will be. Well, that's what I understand him to be describing here. Also further... Number two, I will take you. The verb take here, it has the ideas of selecting, choosing. This the, the verb that I mentioned here to choose, that one is used for David's election as king in Psalm seventy eight seventy. By the way, it was God doing the electing, not people. So this is a strong term about God's selection of the Davidic king. Notice that king is further, or I'm sorry, Zerubbabel now is called my servant. This term is not used to many people in the Old Testament as personal servants of the Lord. But the term does show a special relationship. Uh, Now, we often get negative connotations. But friends, to be called the servant of God, that's a blessed thing. Because you have a special relationship through Christ with God. And to be his servant will be a wonderful thing. But notice, this is mentioning Zerubbabel. He's the one we're talking about, the signet ring. So he has a special relationship with with prophetic scripture. Um, Birhoff has stated, the figure of servant presupposes the idea of a favorite confidant of the king, one who remains in the vicinity of the king, who knows the mind and wishes of the king, and who executes the confidential assignment of his master, without mentioning David or the Davidic dynasty, by using this term, the idea is prominent. Because David was called my servant. So, let's go on to the next page, my signet ring. Notice, I'll say a little bit more about this. Um, His being a signet ring, that also... The figure of a signet ring was powerfully used to begin the the paragraph in Jeremiah 22, 24 to 30. In the context of Jeremiah 22, the Lord describes his rejection of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was in the Davidic line of kings. And in this passage... God announces his rejection of Jehoiakin and his descendants from sitting on the throne by setting forth that he would remove him as his signet from his right hand. A commentator states this significant well. The signet ring was used to impress the owner's signature into a document. Earthenware jars used to collect grain and oil for taxation purposes, carried the royal stamp with two-winged symbol, the word Lamelech, belonging to the king, and the name of the town where the collection was made. The kings of Judah were regarded as Yahweh's official representatives who employed his signet ring. The signet ring was valuable and precious to its owner. But Keniah, by the way, he's also called Jeconiah in scripture. If you notice Jehoiakim, the last part, you can see a connection. Notice, but Keniah would be rejected as Javeth's signet ring and would no longer operate as Javez appointed king in Judah. How far reaching is this rejection of Jehoiakim? The question is answered in verse 30 of Jeremiah 22. The text indicates that none of his descendants would ever again rule as king in Judah. And by the way, they never did. So, does that mean those promises God made in 2 Samuel 7 and re again in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, does that mean the Davidic dynasty is over? That's the issue. Well because of his rejection of Jehoiakim, that should have been a question for every Jew what happens to the Davidic line well may I say it's not going to run through Jehoiakim, but it is going to run through somebody else let me go on with my notes here I, I mentioned this thing in 2 Samuel 7 the unconditional promises but notice in my next to the last paragraph When we compare this with two prominent genealogies in the New Testament, in fact, I should have skipped over the last part of that paragraph, that paragraph before that. Let let me just read part of that. What are the promises of this covenant? So this is about five lines from the end. David is promised a great name in verse 9, rest in the land in verse 11, a kingdom in verse 12 and verse 16, and an enduring dynasty in verses 13 to 16. Consequently, we must affirm that it is impossible for the Lord to nullify the Davidic covenant. By the way, I also point out in this paragraph, sometimes this is called an unconditional covenant. What that means is David, once that's given to him, he doesn't have to do anything and that that covenant's going to go on. Some call it a promissory covenant. I like that expression. He's making promises, and those promises, when God makes them, cannot be made void. They will come to pass. So notice, let me go on in reference to the two genealogies in the New Testament. In Matthew 1, Joseph's family line <coughs> is traced through Jehoiakim back to Solomon and to David. What's important here, that, that line, even as you go back through Jehoiakim, by the way, he had the other descendants. They just didn't rule. But that, that part of the family line establishes his legal rights. That meets the demands of the Davidic covenant. However, it is important to note that Joseph was not his biological father. Thus, Jesus' kingship is not in violation of the curse in Jehoiakim. The other genealogy is in Luke 3. It apparently traces Jesus' family line back through Mary to Nathan and then to David. So they're bypassing Jehoiakim. So they come back uh, through another angle of the family line. Now, what's important about this, Jesus is really the biological son of Mary. Now, we don't talk about that much. But David, when, when Jesus was enfleshed, he took on the physical makeup of Mary minus her sin nature. So he would have had family resemblances with Mary. So we call that um, impersonal humanity. Impersonal only in the sense it did not have a sin nature. So what we have uh, with Christ, he is the God-man. He is both God and man without confusion or any fusion. He he has, as far as his human aspect, he's got Mary's genes minus her sin nature. I don't know. You might have heard, you probably heard that, Ron. You all don't think of it much. But it's important for his humanity because he's got to be both man and God without him becoming human, we could have no substitute. Both are essential. And all I'm saying is, at the point of conception, God took the stuff in Mary, the human stuff in Mary, minus her sin nature, and the eternal God became in flesh. So on the one hand, You have somebody, some human life that's just beginning. But because of his deity, because it's the eternal Son of God who's becoming in flesh, he's existed forever. So, you know, I was forming a plan for the universe. I would never conceive of that. I just know the people that are wicked and I don't like, I would have damned them right away but thank God I'm not God because some of those people may be his elect. <laughs> but you know the point is that's absolutely necessary. So he's got to be God and yet he's got to be a man. And what else is interesting is that with Jesus becoming in flesh in Mary's womb, you do not have a new person. You have her humanity and being impregnated with the eternal Son of God. So he is not a new person. See at conception, a new person comes in existence. So every time a woman conceives, she and her she and her spouse they've now created a new person who will have a future, an eternal future. But with Jesus, that was different. So, at conception, when he's in fetal form, or whatever they call for the first part, I just call it the unborn myself, the unborn baby, uh, he is the eternal God. And yet, as he will de- develop, her Developing Mary, he will be a fetus, and he will be eternal. So anyway, I had to throw in that extra theology. See, my my doctorate's called a doctorate of theology. Now I have a doctorate of theology in Old Testament, which means I worked on the Old Testament. You know, I learned languages like hieroglyphics, Ugaritic, and Aramaic and all that stuff but it's also in theology so I've always had a concern for theology because that was the nature of my degree but I do think that with Jesus we need to understand we can get here because Jehoiakim's family line was bypassed well so he has a special relationship with God let's I think my iPhones tell me it's time to finish up so let's go over to page 20 let's look at the last four lines as the leader in restoring him, he also had a strong influence on the religious scene so I point out just before that he has an influence on the political scene And in keeping with the eschatological nature of our context Zerubbabel had a significant juncture in the history of the Jewish state as it looked forward to the time when the real king-priest will rule. And that's probably the appropriate place to end. Okay, well, we'll be ready for Malachi next week. And uh, we will be going into all kinds of things in Malachi. It's, uh, it's an extremely intriguing book that's very practical practical in our day in so many ways. So anyway, we'll see you next week. Sorry to run half a minute over.